Welcome to another multi-week study I am calling a Bible Prophecy Timeline. It's available as a video presentation as well as an audio podcast on the Bible Prophecy Talk podcast feed. You can find links to both at the website BibleProphecyTalk.com. I've made a graphic here with 15 Bible prophecy-related events that will occur either just before or during the 70th week of Daniel, i.e. the seven-year period in the end times. It is by no means every event that is said to happen in the end times. It's my intention to take each section of this timeline and defend with Scripture the placement of each event. I believe that the simple act of defending the order of events is going to help people see things about Bible prophecy that they would not have been able to see any other way. And I think that if you stick around for the first part today about world government, you will see what I mean by that statement. A couple notes before we get started. I've decided not to dumb this study down at all. This study is going to assume that you have a fairly advanced understanding of Bible prophecy. I've also decided not to worry about explaining difficult subjects that I've already explained in other places. For example, I know a lot of you will see that in this timeline I have placed the rapture after the midpoint but before the day of the Lord. This is because I hold to something called the pre-wrath rapture. Usually, if I hold to a view like that, I've explained it in detail in some other place. In this case, I wrote and directed a feature-length film called Seven Pre-Trib Problems and the Pre-Wrath Rapture that you can see at the website sevenpretribproblems.com. So I won't be spending time in this study defending that view, but if I do come to something that's a little bit out of the ordinary, I will try to provide additional scripture and other argumentation as much as I can as we progress. Today I'm just going to cover one event on this timeline, which is world government. And while I will be discussing certain arguments for the existence of a world government in the end times, as well as certain characteristics it is said to have, one of my main goals today is to justify where I've placed the world government on the Bible prophecy timeline. You may have noticed that the next event I have on the timeline is the Antichrist Covenant, which most Bible prophecy students will know is the very first event in the 70th week of Daniel. I'm going to argue that a world government, specifically the seventh head of the seven-headed, ten-horned beast of Daniel 7, Revelation 13 and 17, will exist before the seven-year period begins. I will argue that we are not told how long this seventh head will have been in existence before the Antichrist is on the scene. It could be one year or a hundred years or more. I will further argue that the Antichrist will not be associated with the final empire's creation. In fact, he seems to be in opposition to it when he comes on the scene. He eventually, as we will see in part four, actually takes this world system over and makes it about him and his worship after the abomination of desolation at the midpoint of the seven-year period. If these two premises that I hope to demonstrate here are true, namely that the Antichrist comes on the scene significantly after this oppressive world government is established, say 30 years after for the sake of argument, and that he will initially be in opposition to that ten-king coalition, then Christians who experience these events will be in danger of seeing the one that defeats this oppressive and evil empire, that is the Antichrist, as a kind of savior. This would all be amplified by the fact that this last empire would be a global government. For example, in the past, belief that a given government or system was the Antichrist system was limited to a smaller area, usually the area being oppressed by that system. For example, Christians in Europe who were being persecuted by the Catholic Church 
were the ones promoting that the Catholic Church was the Antichrist system. It wasn't a belief that the whole world had at that time. Same thing with Nero, Attila the Hun, Genghis Khan, Napoleon, Hitler, Stalin, all of whom have been proposed as Antichrist candidates by the populations that they ruled. Though I don't know for sure, I would strongly suspect that Christians in the underground church in China right now have teachings about how the Communist Party of China is the Antichrist system. And again, you can't blame them. The difference here is that if the world goes into a global government soon, and that government is oppressive towards Christians, for the first time, the entire Christian population of the globe will have the same enemy, that is, this oppressive global system. And thus, all the Christians in the world will likely be very excited to hear about the man who will defeat this hated enemy. But this global government will probably have various elements that the underground church who is being oppressed by it will teach each other are aspects of the Antichrist and the Mark of the Beast. After all, I'm quite sure such a global government would require things like a digital passport and other things that will prevent buying and selling. But a digital passport just by itself is not necessarily the mark of the beast. It may prevent you from buying and selling, and I'm certainly not going to get one. But the point is, it's not necessarily the mark of the beast. There is a lot of information. It needs to be on your right hand or forehead. It needs to have the number 666 either on it or in it somehow. That number is associated with a man's name. It has to be given by the false prophet after the midpoint, most likely, which is after a man is sit in the temple and declared himself to be God. It's given by a false prophet who does things like call fire down from heaven in the full view of men, something that I don't think people would miss. It's given so that you will worship the Antichrist. And this is not a, a, a minor part of this. This is the reason for the Mark of the Beast. It is a, a declaration that you will worship the Antichrist. Yes, you get to buy or sell as well, but it's primarily that he causes this image of the beast. He gives it life. You now have to worship it or be killed by it. That's the context of the Mark of the Beast. The point is there will be a lot of aspects of this seventh head before the Antichrist that will seem like the end times. I think that Satan will go out of his way to make sure Christians believe it is the end times. Add to this that it really will have ten kings or kingdoms as its main bureaucratic apparatus because it really will be the seventh head of the beast. So Christians are going to have a lot of ammunition when they're teaching their congregations in these underground churches that this current system is the Antichrist system. But what I hope to prove to you later in this presentation is that during the first phase of this world government, the final seventh head world government, none of the actual things that the Bible warns us about the Antichrist will have happened yet. The more that Christians at the time believe that the system itself is the Antichrist, or some person within that system that's not the Antichrist is the Antichrist, even though the Antichrist has not actually shown up yet, the more they will be prey for the actual Antichrist's savior deception when he does arrive. For those of you thinking that the Antichrist won't come on the scene as a savior, remember that the first thing he does, according to Daniel 9.27, is make a covenant with many, which apparently allows for the thing that the Jews have been praying for for almost 3,000 years to happen, that is, starting the daily sacrifices in Jerusalem, which will continue for three and a half years after that point. That is a very pro-Israel act, and the ten kings are apparently not very happy with it as they go to war with him after that point. They seem to attack him, which is an interesting thing. 
He defeats three of those ten kings in battle, forcing the others to apparently submit to him. They give their royal authority to him after that. He reshapes that entire world government into a completely different system that's based on his literal worship. This happens after his apparent resurrection, which I would argue happens just before the midpoint, something that I will discuss in another episode. In my various books, like False Christ or Mystery Babylon, which are completely free online at BibleProphecyText.com, I argue that every single thing that the Antichrist is said to do, including his sitting in the temple, declaring himself to be God at the midpoint and demanding worship, is an attempt to be seen as the real Messiah. I believe that the Bible is showing us a man who is very concerned with looking like he is fulfilling all the prophecies that the people in the first century wanted Jesus to fulfill like defeat specific enemies and set up a world government with Jerusalem as its capital. I would submit that if you chart all this out, which we will do in this study, it paints a picture of the Antichrist trying to be seen as a liberator from world government, or at least one form of world government, which is why I think that the seventh head is also spoken of as an eighth, but still part of the seven in Revelation 17. That is, the geography and bureaucracy didn't change much. It was ten kings at the start, and it's ten kings all the way at the end during Armageddon, as we'll see in a minute. But at the midpoint, it's changed to a theocracy, and the ten kings give their ruling authority completely to the Antichrist, thus making it an eighth, but still part of the seven. Don't worry, I will explain a lot of this as we progress, but the point is that if Christians think that a world government that hates and kills Christians is all that you need to be in the end times, they need to understand that such a system could be a massive setup to love the man who liberates them from it and maybe even worship him as Messiah. Beginning with the basics. First, I need to do a quick refresher on the seven-headed, ten-horned beast and the final empire in scripture. And I should say that I've recently changed my view on this issue back to a more traditional understanding of it. I discussed the reasoning behind this change in a multi-weeks audio study on the seven-headed ten-horned beast on my podcast, which I will link in the description. Basically, I used to think that the beasts in Daniel 7 were contemporaneous, meaning that they exist at the same time in the end times, which sort of threw off my view of the seven-headed ten-horned beast in Revelation. But I now see this whole issue of the seven-headed ten-horned beast much like your average premillennial Bible prophecy teacher would, which is that Satan is described in the book of Revelation and to some degree in Daniel as a seven-headed ten-horned beast. The heads of this beast are sometimes called kingdoms and sometimes kings, but I think it's clear that we are to understand this as interchangeable since they are used both ways. This symbolism of the seven heads, I think, can easily be demonstrated to mean that Satan has tried to control the world, especially Israel, through massive empires on six previous occasions by John's day in the book of Revelation. John says of these heads, five have fallen, one, which we presume to be Rome, is, and one is yet to come. I, like many prophecy teachers, understand these heads to be Egypt, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and a revived Roman Empire. I don't really like the term revived Roman Empire to refer to this final empire, but it is appropriate in at least one sense. I think you can see a geographical progression from the earliest attempts of Satan to rule the world with Egypt and follow it up through the sixth head, that is Rome, and see that with each empire he controls a little bit more of the Mediterranean Sea. 
until finally with Rome, he controlled the whole sea, something that has never been duplicated since then. I think the Bible gives credence to this theory to some extent. For example, in Daniel 7, when speaking of these world empires, it says that they all come up from the Great Sea, which is a term which always is used to describe the Mediterranean Sea in Scripture. I also think there's more evidence for this little pet theory of mine, which I talk about in that podcast, but I won't belabor the point here. One point that I think is important but very often overlooked is that it seems like a kind of prerequisite of being one of these beast nation heads is that it must control Israel. That's not stated directly, but it certainly was true of the previous six heads, and it would make sense given the events that we are told that follow. Another important aspect of this seven-headed, ten-horned beast is that its last head, the one that will be on earth during the end times, will have ten horns with ten crowns on it. This symbolic imagery is explained as being a reference to ten kings. This reference to ten kings is why many Bible prophecy teachers, including myself, understand that the final empire of the beast will be ruled by a group of ten somethings. This could be kings or kingdoms or maybe even nations in my opinion, but ten somethings will rule at least Israel, but probably much of the Mediterranean coastline as well if past is prologue. We'll be looking very closely at these ten kings in this study since by following their career it can tell you quite a lot about the end times timeline. All right, so let me move on to proving the premises of this study. The first thing is that the final head of this beast will arrive before the Antichrist. So the ten kings will come before the Antichrist is even on the scene. Let's first look at Daniel chapter 7, starting in verse 8. This is when Daniel has a vision about this uh, the head, and it's got horns. It says this, I considered the horns, these ten horns, and behold, there came up from among them another horn. So we now get 11 horns, a little horn, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. So this is widely understood, this little horn to be a picture of the Antichrist. Later on in verse 24 or so, the angel begins to interpret this vision that Daniel had about the beast and the horns and all this other stuff. And it says, as for the ten horns, out of this kingdom, he's speaking of that final head, which is, the angels already told him is a kingdom, out of that head, ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different than the former ones, and shall put down three kings. So this little horn, who is widely understood to be a reference to the Antichrist, is said here to come after the ten kings are established. It says quite clearly, he shall arise after them. It then seems to reiterate that by using the word former ones, the Aramaic word for former or first, and then it says he shall put down three kings. Even the idea that he's putting down three kings is an argument that he comes after them. They've already been established to some extent, right, if he's now putting them down. The three of the ten kings that the Antichrist, quote, puts down are not destroyed during this conflict. The word used by the interpreting angel for what the Antichrist does to these three kings means to subdue or humiliate them, and that is the word that a lot of Bible translations use. I think you can actually see a picture of this uh, war and then subservience 
in Daniel 11, but that's a story for another episode. I think that we can know that these ten kings, who necessarily exist before the Antichrist arises, so before the 70th week of Daniel, or at the very least right at the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel, they exist as ten units all the way up until the very end of the 70th week of Daniel. So for that entire seven-year period, we can determine where these ten kings are. For example, in Revelation 17, 12 through 14, it starts to give us clues about this. It says, And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast, and they will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and those with him are called chosen and faithful. So now we have the angel's interpretation of that vision, which says, And the ten horns that you saw, and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked, and devour her flesh, and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is that great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Because the destruction of Mystery Babylon, which is talking about there, is one of the very last events in the book of Revelation chronologically, we can be sure that these ten kings exist right up to the end of the 70th week of Daniel. Though it just calls them kings in this verse because of the reference to them going to war against the Lamb, I think it's a pretty sure bet that these are the same ten kings that are part of the group gathered to go to war with the Lamb in Revelation 19 at the Battle of Armageddon. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. So if we take for granted that the ten kings in Daniel 7 are the same ones in Revelation 17, which I think most would agree is quite clear, then what follows from that premise is, number one, the ten king government exists before the Antichrist comes on the scene. Number two, this government is conquered by the Antichrist, but they will not be destroyed by him. And number three, after this conquest, all ten kings will give their ruling authority to the Antichrist, but they will apparently still control this system to some extent. The hour that the ten kings are said to rule with the beast is symbolically speaking of the time after his conquest, which I hope to prove to you during this series is referring to the three and a half year period after the midpoint when the Antichrist declares himself to be God, turning their world government into a theocracy. This is why the book of Revelation seems to suggest there are actually two phases to the seventh and final head empire. Quote, They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come, and when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. The last empire of Satan will exist in two distinct phases, distinct enough that they really need to be called a seventh and an eighth, but in another sense are exactly the same kingdom, geographically, ruled by the same ten-nation bureaucracy throughout its entire life. The first phase is whenever such a ten-nation system develops. It could be soon or not. It could last a long time or not. As far as I can tell, the Bible is silent on that issue, but it will exist before the 70th week starts and before the Antichrist comes on the scene. 
When the Antichrist does show up, we of course know he is a man of war. Revelation 13 says, who is like the beast? Who can make war with him? They worship him in some sense because of his war-making capability. In any case, he does uh, have military conflict with three of these uh, ten nations of this world government. He is entirely successful in that conquest. Just after his successful conquest, he will be killed by someone or something just outside Jerusalem. He will then appear to resurrect from the dead, after which he will declare his deity in the temple that was rebuilt three and a half years before that event and demand the worship of the world. This then begins the theocratic part of his rule in which he is given authority over the saints to kill them. This is when Jerusalem becomes the capital city of the world and everyone will need to travel to Jerusalem to worship the image of the beast erected by the false prophet or be killed by it. Again, it's the same empire with the same ten king bureaucracy that he just conquered, but he converts it into a theocracy at the midpoint. I know that's a lot of information, and I would expect you to be very skeptical about those claims at this point, but I will be fleshing that and many more things out with scripture as we progress. So that's the main point of this first episode, which is that I believe scripture tells us that the world government comes before the Antichrist and before the seven-year period even begins. But as you can tell, the main burden I have here is just to say this could be a big deception from the Antichrist, this sort of false flag problem reaction solution empire with two phases. The first phase to get Christians to hate it, to be the epitome of what Christians you know, expect in their sort of newspaper eisegesis kind of situation where they, you know, see a woke, communist, totalitarian, Christian-hating, Christian-censoring empire that's decadent and awful and all these things, and it's just so brutal to Christians. And, you know, there's going to be no shortages of things that we can make be the Antichrist in a system like that. We can make be the mark of the beast in a system like that or a false prophet. It's going to be a totalitarian police state. Of course, we're going to find we found things. Every Democratic president has been accused as being the Antichrist. So in an actual totalitarian police state, yeah, we're going to find a way to make it the Antichrist, even though it won't be yet. And that is just so dangerous because of the standard false flag psychological operation that comes with somebody freeing you from the thing that you were the most scared of. And just simply connect that with what you know about the beginning of the Antichrist empire. He comes as a person who makes a covenant with many, which we understand to be Israel. We know that probably has something to do with either starting the building of the temple, but certainly starting the daily sacrifices. If you think the man that does that for Israel, something that they literally pray every day for and have been doing so for almost 3,000 years, will not be seen as a candidate for the Messiah, then you haven't been paying attention. But even more to the point, I think you can also see with what we've been looking at today, that if, certainly if past his prologue with the heads of the previous empires, Babylon, uh, Medo-Persia, Egypt, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, they all controlled Israel. It was Israel was not the master of its own fate during those times. In fact, that may be the single thing that ties all those empires together. If you're looking for a cohesive argument of what it takes to be a satanic head empire, it may be that you must control Israel's fate. Off the top of my head, I can't think of another time in which Israel was controlled by anyone except for those previous six empires. But what that means is that currently Israel is sovereign. Israel does co uh, control its fate. But if it is controlled by this ten-headed, the final 
seventh head of this empire, if it's like the others, it will be like Rome or uh, Babylon. It will control Israel. It will be a, uh, and that is something that people aren't really expecting to happen at all. But plug that into the idea that the Antichrist making a covenant with Israel, and instead of it being just one many of many controlled places that the ten nation thing controls, the Antichrist switches that and makes it the jewel of the whole system. He makes it the capital of the ten nation system. He he rules from it in a theocracy after that. I think that's when you get the Mystery Babylon system. Mystery Babylon sees this moment in history of her uh, sort of validation. She thinks that she's found her king and her husband. She's pictured as a harlot, high priestess that is promoting the worship of the Antichrist to the world, and the world is made drunk by the fierceness of her fornication. She worships him so fervently that the world is drawn into it. Okay, all right, a lot of rambling there. I hope I got to the point. This is part one of a Bible prophecy timeline. Go to the website BibleProphecyTalk.com for more. Part two will be out soon. I think I'm going to start putting these out on places like Gab and Odyssey more than YouTube and try to switch over there. So if you are so inclined, check some of the links in the description to those channels. <music>